So um, this morning we're taking up a, a very tough topic um, in our series, When Christians Get It Wrong. It's, it's homosexuality and how do we wrestle with the issue of homosexuality in the church. And I just, I'm going to be honest with you here um, at the beginning. I hope I'm honest with you every week, but I'm going to be honest, very honest with you here at the beginning of this service um, and tell you that I once heard in a preaching course, and I happened to just read an article that said nearly the same thing, um, that you ought not get up in a pulpit and preach unless you're absolutely convinced of what it is that you have to say. I say that to you this morning because what we're going to talk about this morning is still in process for me. Um, I am still wrestling with what it means um, for us to be Christians and to embrace people who are different than us, and I am struggling with this issue. And so if you hear me um, speak this morning, as you hear me speak this morning, if, if it sounds like I'm in process and I haven't got everything figured out, then you're exactly right, because I am in process, and I don't have all the answers, and I haven't figured everything out around this topic. There are more questions um, that can be answered than we'll have in the uh, 20 or so minutes um, that I have to speak. Uh, there are more issues to be wrestled with. And so um, I want to encourage you, uh, if you want to continue this conversation, you can do that through email. Um, you can do that through giving me a call. Um, all of my contact information, even my cell phone number, is up on the website. It's www.pitmanpark.org. Um, you can find all of my contact information there. would love to continue this conversation beyond um, this sermon. Um, and, and if you're really interested, you can come Wednesday night. We've got a Bible study around um, this when Christians get it wrong theme that happens in the parlor after Wednesday night supper at about 6.45 p.m. Um, if you want to come and continue the conversation, you are more than welcome to join um, the group that's there. So what I'm asking uh, from you this morning uh, is for you and I to meet in a place of trust, to meet in a place where we admit that, that all of us, that we don't have everything figured out, and that more often than not, when it comes to matters of faith, that we have more questions than we do answers. Now, with all that being said, I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are with us. That you are with us in every moment, in every place, in every time. That your spirit abides with us and that you walk with us as we seek to live out your will for our lives, for our community, for our church, in this world. So God, be with us this morning. Give us peace of mind. Give us strength for the journey ahead. So we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So I'm going to throw a name out there this morning. Do you happen to know the name Fred Phelps? Anybody know the name Fred Phelps? How about this? Do you know Westboro Baptist Church? Have you ever heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Fred Phelps is, was the senior pastor um, of that church, and Fred Phelps um, was known, and Westboro Baptist Church was known for um, going out and picketing funerals, holding signs that were very provocative, to say the least. Uh, do, you, do you know what some of those signs said? Yeah, some of you do. I'm going to say it, so if you want to cover your children's ears, that's fine. Those signs, some of them would say, God hates fags. 
or that gays will burn. They went from military funeral to military funeral, promoting this idea that God hates homosexuals, homosexual people, that God hates homosexuals. In fact, it was so bad in some funerals that um, police had to be called in, that funeral processions for soldiers would be escorted by large contingents of, of men and women riding motorcycles to protect the families and, and shield them from these protesters. And most of us, um, I hope for most of us sitting here, that whenever you hear that, your first response is, that's not a good representation of the Christian faith. To say things like that, to picket at a funeral. I hope that that's your first response because that's my first response is I don't want to be associated with anyone who has that message as sort of the first thing out their mouth. That's the first thing that comes up. I don't want to be associated with that. In fact, most United Methodist ministers, and I will say that all ministers that I know in the South Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church would say that is not the message that we want to be associated with as a church. But here's the problem. Because Westboro got so much attention and because so many Christians have done things to hurt people uh, who are homosexual and, and who have a sexual orientation different than heterosexual, incredible harm has been done and Christianity has been associated with men in churches like Fred Phelps. I don't know if you could see it on the graphic during our video, but uh, it was up there that 91%, 91% of young adults as age 16 to 29 think that the Christian church is anti-homosexual. Anti, not homophobic, but anti-homosexual. Not just that they're afraid, but that the church actually would say that homosexuals are not welcome. That's what anti-homosexual means. I hope that that is the furthest thing from the truth. I hope that that is the furthest thing from the truth. But if we're honest, we have to admit that even in the church, homosexuality is an incredibly divisive issue. Not only in the country, but in our churches today. In fact, the United Methodist Church is currently in the throes of struggling and continuing to struggle with this issue and, and how you relate to people with different gender orientations. Ever since 1972, at every general conference, every four years, the issue of homosexuality has been brought up. And the conflict right now in the United Methodist Church is so tense, so intense, that there are people on either side of the theological divide calling for the church to split into a liberal branch, progressive branch, and a conservative traditional branch. That the church was split. This is how divisive the issue of homosexuality is in the church. There are conservatives lined up on one side of the issue and progressives lined up on the other. But the divide isn't just between progressives and conservatives. It's also a divide between generations. There's a generational divide that's happening in our culture, in our world. And you've probably noticed this. In fact, um, 
young people generally tend to be more okay with homosexuality than older generations. I had several conversations this week with the people that are my age, um, around my age. Um, I'm 33, if that, that helps place me. Um, I was born in 1981, um, so people that, that I went to high school with, a couple years older, a couple years younger than me, um, and I kept asking about this topic because I was trying to gather information. I'm, I'm working on my sermon all week long when I'm having conversations with people, and so I'm having these conversations, and um, I just talk about, I asked about homosexuality. What do you think about homosexuality? And, and over and over again, young people told me, I don't think about it at all. I thought, okay, that's different. You don't think about it at all. What do you mean you don't think about it at all? Well, well, I'm not worried about it. Okay, well, what do you mean you're, you're not worried about it? Well, if somebody is, then, then, then that's their choice. This is what I've heard over and over again in conversation after conversation over the past few weeks. And, and these young adults, they don't understand why the church spends so much time focusing on this one issue. If you ask young adults, the church is very myopic. That we're very concerned about this one issue. And this issue actually at times keeps us from being in mission and being in ministry with the world in which we live. For Christians today, for many Christians today, particularly young adults, the handful of Bible verses related to same-sex intimacy, they seem like they're, they're more akin to the 100 plus verses on slavery in the Bible than they are the teachings of Jesus and his great commandments to love God and to love neighbors. Their gay and lesbian friends are people just like them in need of love, in need of community, broken and hurting, searching for deeper meaning for their lives. But for some in the church, but for some in the church, what you think about homosexuality has become the litmus test for how faithful you are to God and how faithful you are to the scriptures. For some, for both progressives and conservatives, you can't believe differently than they do and still be a Christian. Let me say that again. For some, both progressive and conservative, you can't believe differently than they do and still be a Christian. That's a deep divide. That's a deep divide. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the divide isn't necessarily over homosexuality in itself. It's more around the authority of Scripture in our lives. The authority of Scripture in our lives. At the center of the divide over homosexuality today is the Bible and how we understand the Bible's authority. And the struggle with this issue is that conservatives and progressives read from the same Bible, and yet come to very different conclusions on the issue of homosexuality. Conservatives and progressives pray to the same God, but come to very different conclusions on this issue. But I want you to know that whatever your opinion is on the issue of homosexuality, your opinion will neither guarantee your entrance into the kingdom of God, nor will it shut you out of the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again. Your opinion, the conclusion that you come to on homosexuality, will neither guarantee your entrance into the kingdom of God, nor will it shut you out of the kingdom of God. 
However, how we understand Scripture and its authority for our lives is absolutely crucial, is absolutely crucial to life and to faith. Because how we understand Scripture informs how we live out our faith in the world and even who God's offer of salvation is open and available to. Now, as far as I'm concerned, people on both sides of this argument, conservatives and progressives, they are Christians. Now, as far as I'm concerned, on both sides of the argument, conservative and progressive, that they both want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. As far as I'm concerned, on both sides of this issue, conservatives and progressives want to partner with God for his redeeming work in this world. I truly believe that both sides want and desire to see God's best for creation. That's what I think, and I hope that's what you think, and I hope that that's what you want. So let's take a look at the center of the issue biblical authority in our lives. Now, as you probably know, there's different ways to read the Bible. Did you know that there's different ways to read the Bible? Yeah, you can read it all sorts of different ways, but I'm going to lift up four different ways that you can read the Bible. You can read the Bible literally, okay? You can read the Bible literally. You can read the Bible contextually, okay? You can read the Bible metaphorically, or you can read the Bible allegorically. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're only going to deal with the first two, literal and contextual, because this is where most of the issue around homosexuality comes to bear, is how you read the Bible. Do you read it literally, or do you read it contextually? Now, if you read the Bible literally, that means you take every word that's written in Scripture at face value, that it says what it says, okay? That is how you read Literally, if you read contextually, that means that you look at the scriptures and you bring to the scriptures this mindset that someone wrote this text to someone else at a time that was very different than mine. It's healthy to read scripture literally. It's healthy to read scripture contextually. It's healthy to read scripture metaphorically. It's helpful to read scripture allegorically. It's whenever we tie ourselves to one single lens through which we view the scriptures that we get into trouble. Let me show you this. If you are a biblical literalist, that means that every word on the page is absolutely applicable to your life today, tomorrow, and forever. How many of you here like shrimp? None of you are biblical literalists, okay? You, you, you can't eat shrimp, you can't enjoy shrimp if you're a biblical literalist. There's a prohibition in the Old Testament on eating shellfish. You can't do it. How many of you love football? Right? I'm a football. How many of you have ever thrown a football? You are not a biblical literalist because you can't touch pigskin if you're a biblical literalist and footballs are made out of pigskins. You also can't enjoy barbecue. Okay. Yeah, now we're stepping on toes, right? You're getting on my barbecue, right? <laughs> I'm glad that got him. <laughs> How many of you have a cotton polyester blend shirt or, or pants on right now? Also, you are not biblical literalists. There's a prohibition in the Old Testament about mixing garments of different uh, fabrics of different types on a single garment. There's a prohibition 
against that in the Old Testament. Well, you're thinking, well, that's all Old Testament stuff, and we live in a New Testament. Okay, here's a New Testament example of how you are not um, 100% literal when you read the Bible. If you're 100% literal, I'm going to ask you now to raise your nubs, okay? Because if you're literal with your scriptures, you take Jesus' words that if your arm or your hand causes you to sin, that you should cut it off, or if your eye causes you to sin, you should poke it out. So far as I see, none of us have gone that far. Biblical literalism, when you take it by itself, is a slippery slope. It's very dangerous. So is reading the Bible purely contextually. If you read the Bible purely for context and say, well, those words have to do with a certain people in a certain place 2,000 years ago, plus 2,000 plus years ago for most of the Bible, and they don't apply to me, then it's very easy to write off Scripture that you don't like. Scripture that challenges you. Scripture that stretches you and causes you to stay awake at night. It's easy to do that if you can just say, ah, doesn't apply to me. Written for somebody else. Reading Scripture contextually is incredibly dangerous as well. Literalists are correct at times. And contextual, people who read contextually are correct at times as well. And we wrestle with issues like homosexuality because when it comes to that topic, you're dealing with shades of gray. It's not clear where the line is in Scripture. And I'm going to admit to you again that that I'm not 100% sure of where I am on this topic. So what I want to do is to share with you what I do know, okay, and what I am 100% convinced of. Here's what I'm 100% convinced of this morning, that every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being is created in the image of God. You, me, us, them, we, they, all of us are created with God's image imprinted on the DNA of our souls. God's fingerprints are all over us. We are God's children no matter who you are. You have value and you have worth because you are a child of God and you have gifts and you have abilities that express the greatness of the one who created you. Every one of us is created in the image of of God, and God is concerned with each and every one of us. Every soul on this planet, God has concern and compassion for. This is actually God's message to Peter in Acts 10. If you read the blog post this week, I asked you to read Acts 10. And in Acts 10, Peter is struggling with understanding how the message of Jesus relates to Gentiles, these people who were ostracized by Jewish culture, who were put out and were not allowed to be a part of Jewish worship. Um, The message of God was just not for them. Paul is wrestling with this, and he goes up onto a rooftop to pray, and he has this vision where a net comes down. And inside of this net 
And there are all kinds of unclean animals or animals that, that Peter would have known as unclean. There would have been shrimp in there and there would have been barbecue ribs and there would have been all sorts of insects and reptiles, these things that you weren't supposed to touch or go near or certainly not consume. And, and the net comes down and Peter hears this message, Peter, kill and eat. Peter, kill and eat. L- listen, to this. this is from, first, or excuse me, from Acts 10. 13. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And here's Peter's response. Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time and said, do not call anything impure which God has made clean. Now at the moment, Peter might have been thinking, this has to do with food. God is saying that I should eat whatever food I want. But there's a larger context going on here, and it's this issue of Jews and Gentiles and the message of the gospel going out to the Gentiles. And so Peter is in a a context where he's about to have to relate to Gentiles. And so here's what happens, and this is a miracle in Acts 10 for Peter. Acts 10, 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside of Cornelius' house And found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law, it is against Jewish law, it's against the Bible, against the Old Testament. There's prohibitions. It's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Here, Peter's mind is changed and he begins to understand that all people are in need of God's grace and are in need of God's redemption. That God has flung the gates of mercy open wide for all people because all people are created in the image of God. Here's the second thing that I'm absolutely certain of. First, all people are created in the image of God. Secondly, every human being struggles with deep brokenness in their souls. Every single one of us struggles with deep brokenness inside of our souls. We call that brokenness sin. And it's sin which has marred the image in which we were created, that has distorted the image of God in which we were created. All of us struggle. It doesn't matter how good you are, how literally or contextually you read the Bible, how liberal or conservative you are, how progressive or traditional you are. It doesn't matter if this is your first time in church or if you're the preacher. We all struggle with deep brokenness inside of our souls. And that brokenness is called sin. And it's this brokenness that alienates us from God and from one another. And this brokenness can't be fixed by you, and it can't be fixed by me, and it's not fixed easily, and it's not fixed quickly, but it is very real. If you have lived for more than five minutes on this earth, you know that the brokenness of this world is very, very real. All of us are created in the image of God. All of us struggle with deep brokenness, and that's called sin. There's a third thing 
that I'm absolutely certain of, that God offers salvation to everyone. God offers salvation to everyone. I love John 3, 16 and 17. In fact, I'm, I, I have to make sure that I don't bring that to you every week because I like it so much. Um, John 3, 16 and 17. Do you remember these verses? They go like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you know what I read when I read this scripture text? That there are no qualifiers. You know what a qualifier is? A qualifier is something that would exclude someone from from this statement. There are no qualifiers here in John 3, 16 and 17. The scripture text says that God so loved the world, the world that he sent his son that we might not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To save the world. That includes everyone. Gay, straight, liberal, Republican, progressive, Democrat, Green Party, Tea Party, I don't know, Dinner Party. There's no qualifiers. There's no qualifiers there. Do you know why? Because salvation is God's alone. It's not something that you and I possess. And if God doesn't put qualifiers on who can come and receive grace and forgiveness, then neither should we. The doors should be wide open for all of those who want to come into a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God's salvation for, is for the world. It's for you. It's for me. It's for everyone. It's not something we possess or something that we dole out as we choose. Fourth thing that I'm convinced of, that God calls those who've received salvation, who've received eternal life through Jesus Christ, to both love God and to love people. To love God and to love people. If you go back and you read the great commandment, you find that Jesus says these words. Can we go ahead and put those up on the screen? You need to see this. This is from Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you know what doesn't exist in those verses? There's no qualifiers. Jesus doesn't tell us to love some people. He doesn't tell us to just love God. He says, love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love people. It's interesting, later on in the scriptures, it'll be written that they will know that we are Christians by our love. If you've ever been to a traditional worship service, you might have sung that song. They will know we are Christians by our love. And that's not even right. (sighs) He's not a singer. They'll know we are Christians by our love. I hope that we can live into that statement that we'll be known as Christians 
by how we love the outcast and the poor and the marginalized and the hurting and the broken and the ostracized because that is what Jesus did. Jesus ate dinner with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the outcast, the downtrodden, the poor, and the broken. And he calls us to do the same, to fling wide the doors of the church so that all can experience the love and grace of God. I'm sure this morning that I didn't convince anyone to change their position. But I certainly hope that you understand that wherever you are on this issue, that you are called to love first. You are called to love first. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we don't have all of the answers to all of the questions. We admit that we struggle at times to understand how to apply your scriptures to our life. How to understand the words that you have given us. But God, we trust that you are leading us on toward life. That you are leading us on toward a future and a hope that is eternal through Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us in these moments as we struggle. Help us to love even when we don't understand. Help us to love even when we don't agree. Help us to love as you have loved us. This we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. This morning, we're going to take up our offering as the band comes back up to the stage and begins. And I just want to say thank you to those of you who who do give and who help um, expand the mission and and ministry of this church um, all around the world. You are making a difference from our children's ministry on the other side of the church all the way to places like Africa and Asia where you may never go. So thank you for giving this morning. As the offering baskets go around, if you will, drop your connection cards in there as well. The band's going to lead us in our closing song.